and the water flowed freely. You know, it's always with some fear and trepidation that I come up to speak, and that's a good thing. You know, I think it's a really good thing that we pray for the speakers that they would come in fear. Well, not fear of speaking, but fear that we might improperly represent that one who has made us ambassadors, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, we speak as if Christ speaketh through us. So it's, there's always a great comfort that comes when you receive a confirmation. And I was greatly encouraged this morning uh, in the message our brother Justin brought. But as we sat through our brother's meeting this afternoon, I became fearful again because there was an even a greater confirmation about a message that, like some of the other ones, isn't always pleasant to deliver. But with the power and the presence of the Spirit, if he can overrule the flesh, we will all, I will give it and we will receive it. Like most messages, this is one that's been on my heart that I had a need, and then the Lord raises up the appropriate time for me to share it with others. You know, as I look back on the messages I've delivered, they've had this common theme, like a planned progression that I didn't plan. And as our brother mentioned this morning, it seems like the goal is to prepare us for the bema, for the judgment seat of Christ. If we look to the future, it will help us meter and plan our steps today that we might finish well. And that should be our goal, right? To finish well. It's better to finish well than to start well and finish poorly. Well, I'm always prone to go over. I always carry more ammunition than I need. And if the sword of the spirit is our ammunition, well, that's a good thing to have too much of, right? I will attempt to get us out of here before midnight. Let the record show that the congregation laughed, but I'm not laughing, so you're not, you're not laughing with me, you're laughing at me. Right? <laughs> well, you know, I've got my notes. So we'll just follow them, right? I'm getting old and senile, and I forget easily, which reminds me of a, I think it was John Newton, although somebody told me he may have been quoting John Bunyan. He said, you know, you're getting old. What do you remember, those great things in your life? And he said, I, well, I remember two things. I may be old and forgetful, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And if we keep that, that idea, that thought, it makes it easier to dig into the word, to see those things maybe we don't like, but still apprehend them and apply them to our life. So I want to pursue something that is an impediment. It is a sin which is pernicious and yet often unrecognized. And I'm going to start by quoting what a man said about this. Now, he's a brother in Christ. I may find some things to disagree with him over. But he put this so well that I'm going to, through the night, talk about some of the things he said. And it's, these were said by Clive Staple Lewis, C.S. Lewis. He said, I now come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy of it when he finds it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have of it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Father, we would come before you tonight and ask indeed, um, we recognize that in the flesh we can do nothing, so we pray that that your presence would be manifestly felt in the hearts of all, that uh, no words would come out of my mouth, but that they've been ordained by you. 
I am full of foolishness, but you are full of wisdom. We pray that your word will speak to our hearts tonight, that we will be stricken where you would have us stricken, and we would be encouraged where you would build us up. But in all things that we would recognize your word, we would desire then to be obedient. Give us that power. Give us wisdom. Bless us with your presence of your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I would ask a question. Think about this. What would you say is the most important verse in the Bible? I recognize, yes, it's a rhetorical question, and not because it has an obvious answer, but precisely because you could make the argument for many verses. Obviously, I have one in mind. We're not going to take the time tonight to discuss it openly, but I would tell you there's basically two verses, as I spoke to believers in the past week or so over this issue, and there's two verses that came out. Um, the first one is, well, the first verse, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we often hear, if you can apprehend that verse, the rest of Scripture becomes pretty easy. But rather than saying that's the most important verse, I might say that's the most majestic, the majesty of God's creation. The second one, of course, is the most popular and most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, and it's most popular and most well-known for a very good reason. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel in, in, in one verse. If Genesis 1.1 is the most majestic, I would say that John 3.16 is perhaps um, the most glorious the glory of forgiveness that is undeserved, that's freely given to us through Jesus Christ. But there's a foundational verse that I want to speak about tonight that really um, sets the standard, the stage, the measurement, the definition of who will accept Scripture and who won't. We said if they could accept Genesis 1-1, the rest of Scripture becomes easy, but there are those who will not accept it. I spent half an hour, 45 minutes uh, last night street preaching uh, in Brea, I spent half an hour or so with a, an atheist. He absolutely refused to accept anything other than human logic. It's blind, refuses to receive spiritual matters. Oh, he's, he's a very sharp young man, well able to argue and great pleasure he took in it, but he's blind. Well, the verse I want to talk about, we're, we're really not going to spend any time in the book, but if you Go to Matthew and turn left and go five books, you'll come to Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4. We've spoken about it before. It's been on my heart now for some time. This is a foundational verse. It's, Habakkuk says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but my righteous one shall live by his faith. It really defines who's going to accept Scripture and who won't. The proud one... He's going to rely on himself. He's going to deny scripture. He will refuse it like my atheist friend last night did. But the one who has faith, that's the one who's righteous. That's the one who God declares is just. This, this verse is foundational. It's quoted by Paul in three, in three books in the New Testament. It is foundational to him. Yes, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Our verse is quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. I define Romans as the essential legal document which describes the relationship between man and God. It tells us who the just are. It points out we're unjust and that God is just. And it glorifies the gospel. And our verse is quoted in the 17th verse of the first chapter. And of course, in the 16th verse, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And then it speaks about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God revealed faith unto faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, if Romans tells us who the just are, when God makes that judicial pronouncement and says, not guilty, even though I'm guilty, Galatians will tell us what the just one receives. Our verse is quoted in the 11th uh, verse of the third chapter. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for... The righteous man shall live by faith. Sort of a recap of what we see in Romans 5.1. You know, Romans 4.25, Christ was delivered up, nailed to the cross by our transgressions, but he was resurrected for our justification 
And therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That first verse in Romans 5. If Romans tells us who the just is, Galatians tells us what they receive for being pronounced and declared just by God. They receive life. Finally, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, the 38th verse, uh, our, our verse is quoted there, but with a warning. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Can a believer shrink back? Yes, I believe a believer can shrink back, not lose her salvation, but to become displeasing to God. There's a warning there. The book of Hebrews is that exhortation. You've been declared just. You have life, as Galatians tells us. Now, Hebrews tells us we must live a life which demonstrates faith and that we show an appreciation, a recognition of what's been given to us. We must manifest our faith by being obedient. The last time we focused on this verse, we talked about faith and faith to obtain a good resurrection. Tonight, I want to focus on this verse, the other side of it, the proud, and how it might stumble us. Merriam-Webster describes pride as a feeling, A, a feeling that you respect yourself and deserve to be respected by others. Okay. B, it is a feeling that you are more important or better than other people. That, of course, is going to manifest itself with disdainful behavior towards other arrogance. C, maybe not quite so onerous, it is a feeling of happiness that you get when you or someone you know does something good, something difficult. But, but of course, if we're boasting in what we've done, that takes us back to definition B. But if we boast in Christ, in, his, in him crucified, that's a good thing. We can understand a word by the synonyms, the, the, the words that mean the same thing. And in our lexicon, it be ego or pridefulness. How about these three? Self-esteem, self-regard, self-respect. You know, there's nothing wrong with those three words, well, except for the first four letters in each of them, self, as David Hawking would put it. We should esteem, we should regard, we should respect. But if we have it directed towards ourselves, that's pride. The antonyms of pride would be uh, humbleness, humility, modesty, the opposite. That also gives us an understanding of the word. Humbleness, humility, modesty, that sounds like fruits of the Spirit. Another dictionary puts it this way. It's a high and inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in bearing and conduct. You know, even a cursory reading of Scripture lets us know that pride's not a good thing. If we live godly, we put the well-being of others above our own well-being. But if we live pridefully, we put ourselves first. We're going to elevate ourselves and our needs above everybody else. When I asked you what you might think was the most important verse, if I'd rephrased and said, what do you think is the most, the most difficult sin that you struggle with, how many of us would have said pride? And yet the answer is, it is pride. Pride is the root of every single sin. It's because it puts us in a frame of mind that allows us to be disobedient. And sometimes it even demands our disobedience, and we become a slave to it. When I was looking at the thoughts of other people about the issue of pride, I came across a quote that put it really very well by Stephen Cole, a, a Baptist pastor. I hope you don't hold that against him, but he, he said this, one test of true doctrine is that it humbles our pride and it exalts God and his grace. Conversely, false doctrine always lifts up man and pulls down God so that we don't really need a savior. Justification by faith alone excludes all boasting except for boasting in Christ and him crucified, as he paraphrased Paul there. You, you know, it strikes me that, um, speaking of correct doctrine, we can be proud in the fact that we hold to correct doctrine. As our brother was talking about, look at the church of Ephesus. They had correct doctrine. They could identify truth. They could identify false teachers, and they, they shunned them and sought about for good works. Yet was it I don't know, was it pride that hardened their heart so that they left their first love? You know, there wouldn't be any pride if we had our heart filled with Christ. We've been talking about that. We've been praying for revival. And that's what it takes. We need the mind of Christ. Otherwise, we have the mind of man. You know, in Luke 9, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, they approach, uh, Jesus and his disciples approach a Samaritan village and they're turned away. And remember what James and John said, Lord, you want us to call down fire and consume them? 
And, you know, if you look right before that occurrence, they had boasted to the Lord, Lord, we, 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 we found a man casting out demons in your name, but we stopped him because he's not walking close to us. Would we read that he, he's not walking in our manner? You know, Jesus strongly rebuked him in the one and maybe rebuked him or educated him in the other, but in both circumstances, he corrected them. And if we think about it, both of those occurrences occurred right after the disciples that were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Evil pride. Who doesn't have it? We, re we really already know what God feels about pride, how he feels about it in mankind, but we're going to, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We're going to read, I'll read through quickly a few little scriptures there. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You know, we tend to hear a verse and hear a word, and we immediately ascribe to it a specific meaning that we have apprehended. And we assign that verse and that thought, that meaning, to certain groups of people, to our own hurt, because then we lock ourselves out of learning from it. Again, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We like to hear the gospel again because it reminds us of what glorious gift we've been given. Um, if, you, if you want to turn to Psalm chapter 2, we'll be there in just a minute. But I'll just read quickly a couple verses out of the Proverbs. Again, just to reiterate what God has said about it. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 21.4, And high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Proverbs 18.12, Before destruction of the heart. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. There we have him contra uh, contrasted, humility and the pride of haughtiness. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, Proverbs 12, 15. It's obvious God hates pride. That passage in Proverbs 6, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. He hates it. It's an abomination. The first one is a proud look. And then he names all those other sins that we, we would tend to pick out. Uh, a lying, lying tongue, shedding innocent blood, and, and uh, speaking lies, uh, wicked imaginations, running to mischief, and sowing discord among brethren. Pride can destroy a ministry. And if we think back on Eli and his sons, it seems that he didn't do a good job of fathering. Oh, he did rebuke them, and they didn't listen. In pride and arrogance, they were committing wicked things in the temple. When Hannah delivered Samuel, who the Lord raised up to replace them, he spoke through her glorious things. And it, through here, he gave a, a warning about this. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 3, he says, Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Many, many Tekelu Parson. The ministry of Hophni and Phinehas were weighed and found wanting. The Lord carried out, it destroyed them, destroyed the house of Eli and raised up Samuel. We know the story in Daniel chapter 4 of, of Nebuchadnezzar, who in great pride said, Myself, myself, by my power, by, for my glory, he built up Babylon. And while the words were in his mouth, God said, your, your sovereignty is taken from you. He exalted himself and God humbled him. Madness for seven years. We could remember also the five-eye wills of, of Lucifer in Isaiah 14 that caused him to become Satan. Lucifer became Satan. Or how about that the parallel passage in Ezekiel 28? You know, reading this, I mean, I've read this a number of times and dwelt on it, but I, something else just really jumped off the page at me. In Ezekiel 28:17, he says, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. He became Satan. His doom was made sure. Have you ever wondered why Satan allies himself with all evil against the God of creation? How can he possibly think that he can prevail? We think of the, the, the final battle when he comes out to get, seek to destroy God. Satan's got a lot of knowledge, but he has no wisdom on what to do with it. Why? You corrupted your wisdom. Now, again, we ascribe that to Satan. Can we corrupt our wisdom if we allow pride to spring up in our heart? Can God work in a heart that's full of pride?
Now let's look briefly. I said Psalm 2. We're going to talk about atheists and new atheists. I'm going to try not to spend too much time speaking about unbelievers. But again, we are in this picture as well. We should never remove ourselves from Scripture. We should take it and apply it to ourselves, even if the main application, the main interpretation is for a different group. In Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, we read, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're against the God of heaven and his Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at him or holds him in derision, as it says in the other translations. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You know, we're told many are the schemes in a man's heart, but the will of the Lord shall prevail. We jump over to Psalm 14, again, a very familiar passage, uh, speaking of atheists again. You know, the atheists are always upset about religious holidays. They hate Easter. They hate Christmas. Here we have permission to point out to them they have their own holiday, right? We joke the first day of April in Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Uh-oh, we're all in there. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. But for the grace of God, we don't deny God. We seek after him. We seek earnestly with all our heart, all our soul. We'll find him, and he draws us to him. We must not slide back into pride. You know, the problem for the atheists is that they're functionally they're blind. Well, they know it in their conscience, but their conscience is so seared that they cannot hear it. Like that young man I spoke of last night. They're blind to truth, and they're blind to the tugging of their heart as the Spirit attempts to woo them to repentance. They see what they have, and they're proud. They see what they want, and they're lustful or covetous. And, you know, in our pride, we're glad that God's going to judge him. Instead, we ought to be praying. Pray for that young man last night, that he would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. There, but for the grace of God, go I. We'll see that even the religious people and believers are not immune to that type of thought. And, in fact, we're, in some ways, more susceptible. If we jump to Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph. And he's going to confess how he almost slipped and fell as he looked at the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73. Asaph says in the first verse, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You know, there's no room in a pure heart, of course, for pride. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their deaths, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. Their imaginations of their heart run riot. You know, riot's the, the ultimate display of chaos of being out of control. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues parade through the earth. You know, the new atheists, and they're not really all that new. I, I would characterize Voltaire in there with them. Well, you have the four horsemen, well, the three today, right? Christopher Hitchens, he's in eternity. He knows the truth. But is it, was it Dawkins, Harris, and, and Dennett? I think they're all still alive. They're not content to say, I don't believe in God. I want nothing to do with it. No, they set out to destroy it. They say in verse 11, how does God know and is there knowledge with the Most High? Asaph speaking, or God speaking through Asaph says, and this is where he almost slips again. He says, behold, these are the wicked and, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. But he comes to a sense that he said, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And when I pondered to understand this, I was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. 
Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Psalm 75, I'll just make a quick quote. We're kind of running out of time. Psalm 75 opens with this praise of God for his name and for his wondrous works that he set an appointed time, that he's one who judges with equity uh, all the earth and who, those who dwell in it. And we're told to think about that. Then God comes forth with a, yet another warning about pride. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn, the horn being the, the sign of power. We look and lust after power by the nature of the human heart. He says, do not lift up your horn on high and do not speak with insolent pride for not from the east nor from the west nor from the desert comes exaltation. If it comes from anywhere on the earth, it's not from God, from the east or the west or the desert. It says, but God is the judge and he puts down one and exalts the other. And goes on to speak how he's going to pour out his cup of wrath. They're going to have to drink it down to the dregs. If we had more time, we'd go to Isaiah 47 and look how it applies to the New Age, to the mystics. Well, and even the emergent church, who in some ways have, they've joined with the mystics. Their pride is that they're prideful over the fact that they don't take the pride in knowing Scripture. You know, the heretic, Brian McLaren, out of the assemblies, leading many to destruction, says, clarity is overrated. We don't really need to know what the Scripture says. We can't know what the Scripture says. I guess he knows more than Jesus. He told that you know, you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's a, a claim that we find that's what Scripture will do for us, not to them. If we look at unbelieving Israel, again, they're a picture for us. We have not replaced them. God dealt differently with them in some ways, but it does show how he deals with man. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So they're a picture for us. That's Romans 15, 4 says, All scripture written beforehand is for our, our education, our edification. Through the perseverance and encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Well, why don't you turn to Hosea 5, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. And in the meantime, I'm going just, to just take a, a brief moment in Deuteronomy 9, where Moses is warning the Israelites as they go into the promised land. In three verses, he gives them four warnings. Um, in Deuteronomy 9, 4, he says, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. In verse 5, he gives them two warnings right in a row. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart. Finally, in 6, he says, Know then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Finally, in Hosea uh, 5, 1 through 5, we have this warning. Hear this, O priest. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. You know, at the worship service this morning, we ended up in Revelation 5. Not planned, but boy, there's a picture of that there. What does God make us to be? A kingdom of priests unto God? And as we're told in um, Hebrews 3, are we not Christ's house? If we hold fast to our confession, the judgment applies to us if we're disobedient as well. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone in deep into depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and I know Israel. She is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. You know, if we had time, we'd go to Hebrews chapter 6 and speak about that difficult passage about being impossible to be renewed unto repentance. All the parts of the passage that refer to tasting, to understanding, to being a partaker, they're all in the aorist tense. It's a done deal in the past. But the wickedness, the disobedience, that's in the present active. And as long as they're disobedient, 
the impossibility of God repenting and giving them blessing remains. And it's because of blindness we can't see that our deeds are evil. And blindness comes from pride. You know, we were speaking this afternoon, brought up the, the blind man. John chapter 9, we have the account of the, the blind man. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? This man or his parents? And what did Jesus say? He said, that's not it at all. He was born blind in order that the glory of God might be revealed. But do you know in this passage, we're going to see, it reveals the glory of God but it also speaks about spiritual blindness and about them being blinded, and it's because of pride. And we know the story. Jesus heals a man, but how did he heal him? He said he took spittle and clay and put it in his eyes. The blind man knew his name. He knew it was Jesus, but he didn't see him because Jesus says, you go and wash yourself at the pool of Siloam. The man went and washed, and he was healed. You know, astonishment broke out, consternation. There was awe and there was arguing. This man would not have, he's not from God, he wouldn't heal on the Sabbath. And others said, unless he was sent of God, he couldn't heal. They inquired of the man, they grilled him. And he finally said, you know, all I know is once I was blind and now I can see. And finally, in frustration, probably rebuked them. Why do you want to become his disciples too? They put him out. So Jesus found him and made him aware of who he was. And in John chapter 9, verse 39 to 41, we have this account. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. These spiritually bankrupt Pharisees were so proud of their ancestry, their adherence to the law and tradition, that they had disdain, unmitigated disdain for all others. They were willing to argue, they were willing to accuse, but they were not willing to listen. You know, you know Proverbs 27, 17 says we should argue, right? That's what's inferred there. Even as iron sharpens iron, so on man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. We've got iron and iron, there's going to be some sparks. But if, we're, again, we're supposed to speak the, the truth in love, right? But there's also that requirement, that responsibility that we listen for the truth in humility. Otherwise, we can't be improved. Our countenance won't be improved by the arguing with a friend. What about true believers, those who are accepted in the beloved? Both the overcomers and, as Jabe Nicholson would put it, the undergoers ones who have not done anything for the Lord after coming to salvation. What impact does pride have on a believer and their ministry, and, and thus the overall ministry of the church? Now, all believers are blessed, are they not? They're accepted in the beloved. They're going to be forever in the presence of the glory of God. The appropriate question would be, do we limit God's hand of blessing? Do we force God to withdraw his hand of blessing? Do we put ourselves in a position where he must humble us and he can't use us in ministry, knowing that our pride would infect others? And if he gives us success, our pride will grow even more? We can identify pride pretty easily in others. As C.S. Lewis said, you know, it's hard to recognize it in yourself. We can look at, we got brothers that are, and sisters that are in Christ that are Calvinists, right? There are some believers there. We can look at them and say, they're proud. They're proud that they're the elect. And we look to the other side at the Armenians who believe you can lose your salvation. They say, they're full of pride. They think that their works are maintaining their justification, their salvation. How about us? Are, are we immune? I, I'm telling you, I'm not. That's why the Lord's laid this on my heart. And if we're honest, I suspect that there's those amongst us here that would confess to the same thing. Jesus speaks to uh, pride and those who trust in themselves. In Luke 18, we have that, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to pray. You know, the tax collector is just full of pride. It says he's praying to himself. 
But that tax collector, the Pharisee, was praying to himself, full of pride. The tax collector, he won't even lift his eyes, beating his breast, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he went away justified. And again, he makes that statement. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other four. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We associate the Pharisee with unbelievers, but I think none of those Pharisees are, were sincere. Which one of those two would we most closely resemble? And don't trust your own opinion. What would your Christian brothers or your family or what would God say? Continuing with what C.S. Lewis said, he said, the vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. He points out that other vices might sometimes bring people together. You might find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity of man against man, but man to God as well. He went on to say, in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. And the first step is to realize that one is proud. It says, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our righteous religious life is making us feel that we are good and above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Well, if we think about someone to follow, the Apostle Paul, didn't he encourage us, follow me, follow us, even as we follow Christ? Many times he said, imitate us, imitate our walk, imitate what we're doing. Well, he didn't leave us in suspense. He gave us the documentation of what he did and what he thought of himself. If you divide his ministry into three phases, his early ministry, his middle ministry, and his last, we get an astounding picture. One of the first books he wrote would include the two letters to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's a pretty humble statement. I'm the least of the apostles. All the other apostles are up there somewhere. I'm the least. You know, in the middle of his ministry, writing to the Ephesians in 3, verse 8, he said, to me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He went from being the least of the apostles to the least of the saints. And you know where this is going in 1 Timothy 1.15. Near the very end of his life, he said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost went from being the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to being the greatest of sinners. What's up with the downward trajectory of, of Paul? Well, is it a downward trajectory, especially in the eyes of the one who counts? I don't think so. Again, as Jabe Nicholson put it, we ought to be fighting to get to the bottom. There's no competition. Everybody's trying to get to the top. He was commenting on, again, on Jesus' statement. In Mark 9.35, it's put this way, anyone who wants to be the first must be the last and the servant of all, the way it's rendered in the nearly inspired version, or the Phillips or the Holman Christian. In my New American Standard, it says shall, but it's a declarative statement. It, I just like the fact that it puts must. 
Did Jesus know what he was talking about? This downward progression actually exhibits an ever-increasing maturity and sanctification in Christ that Paul is experiencing as he grows. Just as John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Um, That's what's going on with Paul here. Paul the man becomes less and lower whilst Jesus becomes more and higher. That's exactly the opposite of the path of pride. Pride is self exaltation. If we exalt ourselves, we rob God of that honor. He wants to exalt us, but if we exalt ourselves, he must humble us. We ought to fear that. Look what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. God's repeatedly said, I will not share my glory with another. And if we don't seek to share that glory, he will be the one to exalt us. It's always better to have somebody else toot your horn. Isn't that what they say even in the secular world? Jesus spoke to that in in Matthew 23, that any time we put ourselves above God, we're denying his dominion. And that's what the disobedience is doing. We should not exalt ourselves. In Matthew 23, he rebukes the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, saying, they seat themselves in the chair of Moses. He goes on to say, they do their deeds to be noticed by men. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. He finishes with, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And the balance of Matthew 23 is Jesus pronouncing woe. It's a scathing rebuke, and he pronounces woe on the scribes and Pharisees and a lamentation over Jerusalem who refused to receive their king. In Romans chapter 12, as Paul does, he gives doctrine and then practical application. He warns us, don't be conformed to the world. The world tells us we need to love ourselves. No, that's the problem. We already love ourselves. He says, don't be conformed to the world. No, rather, renew your mind. How are we going to do that in Scripture? He warns us not to think more of ourselves more highly than we ought to. In verse 16 of the 12th chapter, he says, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. What does God tell us in in 1 Corinthians? (laughs) I'll choose the foolish things, the weak things, the despised things, and the things which are nothing. And if we exalt ourselves above any of that, we take ourselves out. We become vessels of dishonor. Peter summing, well, he says it this way, to sum up, 1 Peter 3.8, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Pride is going to prevent all of that. It's the antithesis, as I said, of godly living. Pride prevents the lost from coming to salvation because they don't recognize the need. That's what went on with that atheist I spoke with last night. But pride will also prevent our participation in the work of God because, well, we'll, we'll think we're, we're above it or that it's beneath us. It'll prevent us from praying for others, particularly other brothers and sisters in Christ and other, other gatherings. Well, we, got, we got plenty of stuff of our own to pray for, right? And are we, are we praying enough for that? Pride will prevent our purity because we don't perceive the danger. As I said, it blinds our steps. Pride goeth before a fall, and if we fall, God will let us in our pride. Oh, he'll be there to fulfill the promises that he makes in the, in the exhortation. You know, in Jeremiah three twenty two, he says, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. In that same verse, our response, Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. And the antidote, really, the cure is not in us unless it's the spirit within us. That's the answer. You know, our brother spoke this morning in Philippians 3, and he he kept referring back to Philippians 2, and and this is, like I said, why I got some confirmation about what I was going to speak on tonight, pride. I wish we had time. We go to Philippians 2 and read verses 1 through 11. It's the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though being God, he didn't grasp onto that and live his life here with the manifold glory of his greatness being the exact character, the representation of God. No, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross. 
I'm really out of time. Uh, I won't go there, but Galatians 5. Uh, we have the admonition, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As I said earlier, the, the world says, love yourself. You've got to love yourself before you can love others. That's a life in the pit of hell. Every one of you already love yourself, just like me. That's the problem. Our love for ourselves blinds us to the needs of others. Oh, we have compassion of the heart on occasion, but we really can't act on it. Our victory can only come through the Spirit, through the power of God, because we can do nothing through the flesh. But we do have the Spirit given to us if we're in Christ. I know our hearts are right by and large, at least with regard to intent. But do our actions, our obedience to God, do they match that spirit, that intent? If so, we'd live out the promise. The promise in the exhortation of, of Ephesians 2.10. I disagree with almost everything that Rick Warren teaches and does today because of his marriage with the world. But he is right when he says Christians quickly will quote Ephesians 2.8 and 9 that our salvation is through grace and we receive it by faith and not of works. But we forget Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus unto good works which he prepared in advance that we might walk amongst them. We got our own works to do. We're not paying attention to the works of God. That's a conviction on my heart. Look, there's nothing wrong with the New Testament pattern assembly. I think this is the best environment to grow in. But are we overly proud of that? That's what draws us back into the, as our brother was speaking earlier today, about the church at Ephesus. They had it right. But their hearts weren't right. Do we believe that the chief work God has set before us is to come in here to the meetings of the New Testament pattern assembly is that our work? I don't think so. It's to prepare us that we can go out that door into the mission field and minister unto the lost. Oh, yeah, we minister to those amongst us, like our brother Will and his family and the campsters and all those who have needs. But the gifts that Christ gave to the church in Ephesians 4 were for the building up and preparing of the saints. As the teacher said, the reading of many books is wearying. We gather knowledge and gather knowledge and gather knowledge. What are we doing with it? If we are selfish and disobedient, pride, especially towards God, he must reduce his work in us. Like the Israelites who are lacking in faith and had, they doubted God at Kadesh Barnea and that caused them to wander in the wilderness 38 years. Like the RSV saying, do, are we going to have to take another lap? Spoke earlier about vessels of honor, 2 Timothy 2. There's vessels of honor and dishonor. Those made out of precious metals and those made out of wood. It's the direct correlation to 1 Corinthians 3. Everything out of wood's going to burn up. What do we want to be? We want to be vessels of honor. It's not the pattern of the assembly. If there's a problem, it's the pattern of the heart, individual hearts. Our brother mentioned 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If we, who are God's people, will humble ourselves, confess our sin, turn from our wicked ways and pray to God in heaven, he will hear our prayers and heal our land. That's where it starts. If we had time, we'd go to James 4. There's a polemic against pride in the believer. The cure for pride is to draw nigh unto God, and he'll draw nigh unto us. If we... Resist the devil, he'll flee from us, right? But if we draw nigh unto God, he'll draw nigh unto us. That's the cure. What about our pride directed against others? I, I, well, first we've got to do, number one, draw nigh unto God. And then I would posit, I would suggest that if we pray for others that we are feeling prideful against, it'll be difficult, to, if not impossible, to have pride against them. Would you agree with this statement that if we prayed for other believers, other individuals, even surrounding gatherings of Christians, denominational and otherwise, is this true or not? If we pray for them, we will participate in their work, the work of God amongst them, the work they're accomplishing, 
will participate in it and receive rewards and blessings for it. Jesus said, if you love me, why don't you keep my commands? He commanded us to love one another. That's how the world knows that we're his. And all these things, pride will inhibit it. Again, God may bless us. He wants to bless us fully. We're praying for revival. We don't want to see a gleaning here in Claremont. We want to see a mighty harvest. If the harvest isn't occurring, we know that's God's desire. What will it take? We've seen fruit, but will we be satisfied with one-on-one? Would we rather have 30, 60, or 100-fold return? Let's call upon the Lord. In our prayers, we've been saying, show us what you want us to do, and then we need the courage to do it. That's a frightening thing, to turn ourselves over to God. What might he do with a life fully yielded? Father, we are unworthy and at times unwilling to be led, and yet we have come together tonight to seek your wisdom and even rebuke. Lord, pour out rebuke where it's required, a spirit of conviction that we might see ourselves as you see us. Our stated desire is to be pleasing in your eyes and fruitful in ministry. We desire to reflect your glory. We don't have any glory, Father. It's all yours and that of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to reflect it to a lost and dying world. So pour out conviction upon us. Make our hearts soft and supple and broken. Help us to humble ourselves so that you won't have to. And so that your name would be exalted, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up, and many lost souls would come to salvation. Help us in our struggle. For again, we're on unable, but with you all things are possible. We give all glory to you, Father, and thanksgiving for the blessings you showered upon us. Now ready us to be your willing, faithful, and fruitful servants in that we're led by and directed by the power of your Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we give thanks and give you glory. Amen.